0: Good morning, church. It's a pleasure to have each and every one of you with us. If you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We'll be in John chapter 2 this morning as we continue in our series looking at uh, this Gospel. And in the process, we are learning what it means to uh, meet Jesus, what it means to learn and follow Jesus, and what it means to trust Jesus. And this morning, we come to a passage of Scripture uh, that gets us a bit troubled Uh, We see a side of Jesus that, that maybe we don't see so very often, and as a result, we can misinterpret what I think John is trying to tell us as God's people, what we need to know about Jesus and what we need to know about ourselves. And so this morning, we come to a passage of Scripture where we see Jesus get angry. He's upset. He's frustrated by the state of spiritual affairs in the nation of Israel. And the question I want us to ask this morning is, what would Jesus say of our spiritual affairs? What would Jesus say if he was to be a part of our lives? Would he like what he sees? Would he affirm the activities and the thoughts and the aspirations that we have? Or would he, just as he did in the temple, begin to knock over things in our lives and and call out areas of sin So that there might be a cleansing, as there was that day in the temple, that there might be cleansing in our lives as well. As we turn to this scripture, let me just take a moment and ask for God's blessing on our time. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father God, we come before you, and we ask that you would teach us this morning. This is a passage that's going to call us to examine our lives, and that's not easy. We are filled with pride. We are filled with our thoughts of, of that we're doing good enough, uh, that we're adequate in our walk with You. It's easy for us to point our fingers at other people and to compare ourselves and think that we're doing all right. But Lord, when You show up, When you come and evaluate what's going on, you are the final authority. You are the one who matters. So I pray by the gift of your Holy Spirit that we would be changed, that we would be convicted of our sin and that we would turn towards righteousness today so that we may glorify you. And give you the praise that is due your name. We love you and now I ask Lord that you would teach us this morning as the great teacher that you are so that we may live according to your plans, according to your word, and according to your will. We do this by asking in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord and all God's people said, Amen. Surprise inspections. In the military, your commanding officer will show up unannounced and check how your barracks are how your personal items have been stowed away as the government, as the army has required. In the classroom, the teacher will surprise you with a pop quiz, wanting to inspect if you've retained the knowledge, the information that they have taught you over these last days. In the government world, whether it's banking or other areas of government work, regulators will come. They'll audit the books. They'll want to do so, wanting to make sure everything is in its proper place. For me, in my second role as being a caterer, the health department will come from time to time, unannounced, to inspect, to make sure everything is being done so that the public safety is not in peril. You see, surprise inspections in our lives serve as a way to tell the true picture or story of what's going on. You see, we're creatures of habit. If we know an inspection's coming, we'll clean everything up. We'll right all the wrongs so that we are prepared and ready so that there can be nothing pointed out as being out of place. But a surprise inspection gives the truest assessment of what normal life looks like. You see, on that day in Jerusalem, Jesus gave a surprise inspection on the spiritual life of the Israelites. They couldn't clean up. They didn't know because he came unannounced. They didn't have opportunities to right all the wrongs. And so the truest expression of their worship was on display. And let's just be honest, what Jesus saw, he didn't like. And he would exhibit or show or demonstrate that frustration and anger in the process of cleansing the temple. And so before us, we have a passage that causes us to examine our lives and to evaluate as Jesus does inspections from time to time in our lives. Now, as we come to this text, a couple things I want to lay down. What I want to do is I want to work through the text, but I want to get to, as quickly as possible, the application, because if we just look at this event, we, we will cause the camera or the focus, if you will, to go too much on the people in that one experience and to take the onus off of us. So let's look at a couple things, even before we get into our outline this morning. First of all, if you're a Bible student, you've been studying this passage of Scripture and studying the Bible for any amount of time, you know that the other three gospel writers record a cleansing of the temple as well. Now you say, what's the big deal? That helps us. It harmonizes the gospels. Here's the problem. The cleansing of the temple in John's gospel happens in chapter 2, at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. This is right on the heels of him calling his first disciples. This is on the heels of the first uh, miracle at the wedding reception in Cana of Galilee. Now the problem is, is the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record a cleansing of a temple, but it happens the week of Jesus' passion. That is the, on the moments after Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. Somewhere between the parade on Palm Sunday and the arrest of Jesus, they record the event of Jesus cleansing the temple. Of course, liberal scholars love this because they say, listen, this shows contradictions. This shows that uh, the Bible writers were messed up. They, they didn't have uh, the real story all worked together. But as you look at the Scriptures, there's a couple ways that you can interpret this. Number one, and it's the view that I hold, that this wasn't the one and only time Jesus had cleansed the temple. Jesus would go to Jerusalem numerous times And it seems as if Jesus cleanses the temple on two different occasions, one at the very beginning of his earthly ministry, and one at the end. This would have been in line with how the prophets would have started. The prophets usually had a message, kind of an inaugural message at the beginning of their ministry, and they would have a concluding message to the people of God at the end of their ministry. So it would seem if Jesus was coming in the line of the prophets to be the final one who would be the spokesperson for God, that he would have a beginning statement for the temple and the people of Israel and an ending one. Another way we could look at it to help us understand that this isn't a contradiction is the simple fact of what we learned in week one of this series—that John isn't about the what of Jesus's life. That is the details of Jesus's life as much as he is the why. And what we have here is what what John is saying. This is an important event. What isn't important is where it happens in Jesus's life. What is important is why. I recorded it. What the application for the people who believe will take away from this singular event. Either way, we can have confidence that we know that what we are reading is trustworthy and good and not full of contradictions. Now, let's observe a couple things. First of all, let's look at our text. Right away at the beginning of it, John wants to put a timestamp stamp on the events that are about to take place. Notice in verse 13, the Passover was at hand. Now right away as Gentiles in the 21st century, the Passover means nothing to us. We read it like it would, could have easily said on Wednesday, Jesus was in Jerusalem. But for the Israelites, for the Jewish people, the Passover was the greatest, most significant time in the entire year. There wasn't a more sacred, more spiritual time than the time of the Passover. For Israelites, Passover was a time to remember. It was a time to remember what God had done, the deliverance of God uh, from the hand of the Egyptians. Their forefathers had been enslaved for 400 years and God by his grace and his mercy and through his power had given them their freedom. And he had done so in the most amazing of ways, the taking of the firstborn in all of Egypt and the call for the Israelite people to take blood of a sacrificed lamb and to put it on the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over. They needed to remember the goodness of God as we just sang about. The goodness of God that ran after them and ministered to them in their greatest hour of need. It was a time of remembrance. It was also a time of repentance. That is why at Passover all Israelites were called to bring sacrifice. It was a time to uh, ask for forgiveness. It was a time to pay the penalty of sin and to have, if you will, a scapegoat, a scape lamb, who would be given uh, the opportunity and the great cost of laying down their life so that the people might live. And so people would come. In fact, Josephus says that in A.D. 65, he was an ancient historian, he said more than 265,000 lambs or animals were killed and sacrificed in one year in Jerusalem. And so this was a time for people to get right with God. But it was also a time Passover was to rejoice. There was a knowledge that one day Messiah would come and there would no longer be the need to look back, but now to look forward. That time when Messiah would come and right every wrong, that time that the prophets talked about where he would bring peace and hope and would bring the kingdom of God from heaven down to earth. It was a time of incredible commemoration and celebration. This was an incredible moment, and John doesn't want us to miss it. Now notice the text says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, we need to understand, this is not just every day in the capital city of Israel. This is a busy time. As I said, in Jerusalem, Josephus said, in one year, over a quarter million animals were sacrificed. Let's assume that each one of those sacrifices uh, involved a family. And let's just say it was a family of four. That means at Jerusalem, that day that Jesus arrived there, there could have been upwards to a million people in the vicinity of Jerusalem. It would have been a bustling place full of activity and excitement. Now, it was the great goal of every Israelite to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. In fact, it was known that many had savings accounts where they would save money, put it away in a safe place for the opportunity that one time in their life they and their family would make the long journey and have the opportunity to be with God's people in this most holy of days and they wanted to get to a specific place. And notice, that's where Jesus is heading. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. But he didn't just hang out in Jerusalem. He went to a specific spot, verse 14, in the temple. Now, right away, this is where our translations hinder us a little bit, because we see the phrase in the temple, and we could think that this could have happened anywhere inside the temple, but the Greek word there literally means the outer courts. This is the court of the Gentiles. This is where all were welcome to come and pay homage to God. This is not the holy of holies or the most holy place. This is the outer place. The reason why we know that is that the word for temple here in verse 14 is a different word that Jesus uses in verse 19 when he says, destroy this temple. Jesus is talking about destroy the most holy place. And of course, he was meaning his body. So these Israelites would make this pilgrimage, travel long spans of distance and time to be in Jerusalem, the most holy city, for the most holy time to enter the most holy place place the temple. There was no place more sacred than the temple. That is where God dwelt. That's where the people of God could draw near to their God and experience a time of gathering with other worshipers. It was a time of receiving grace. In the temple, you would be told that your sacrifice was sufficient And that you could go with a clear conscience back to your home, filled with gratitude and thanks that God had uh, remembered your sins no more. But it was also a time and a place where God would receive his most glory, where people would worship and adore him. So on that fateful day, when Jesus walks into the temple, he comes to the temple, and what we want to see is when Jesus shows up, write this down, what does he see? What does he see on this most significant of days, in the most significant of cities, in the most significant of places? What does Jesus see? And the text tells us that in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. Wait a minute. You would have thought as you made your journey to Jerusalem to be a part of that most special of days, That when you got there, it would have been so worshipful. It would have been a time of such reverence. It would have been opportunities for great celebration, but there would be places within the temple where you could quiet your heart and get right with God to commune with the God who created you. And when Jesus arrives, he sees a barnyard. Now, let's just envision for a moment a barnyard. A barnyard is not the most effective place to have quiet times or even celebratory times of worship. Animals do gross things. They smell bad. They do things you don't want to see. They don't tell you that they're going to do them. It is a gross experience. So here is Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, and he's in a place that is designed to worship his Father in heaven, and it is a barnyard with all the sights, sounds, and smells that come with animals now, why would that be? It doesn't take a Bible scholar to ask the question: Why would there be animals in a place of worship? And there's a reasonable answer. The reasonable answer is is that in Jerusalem, you would come, and you usually, especially if you traveled from far away, you wouldn't bring your sacrifice. It would be too difficult. And so what you would do is, as you got closer and closer to the city of Jerusalem, what you would do is you would purchase from one of the farmers along the way a sacrifice. And this was convenient. Here's the crazy thing. There were laws within the Talmud that would tell you that you could not charge exorbitant fees with regards to that. So as you were in the suburbs of Jerusalem as a farmer, you knew there was a market and it was okay for you, it was good for business for you to sell animals, but you could not do it in a way of extortion. Here's the problem of what takes place. When Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he comes under the oversight of Annas, the high priest. And the temple had a new nickname for it because of what Annas would allow to take place. They called it the Bazaar of Annas or the Circus of Annas. That was what the temple was called. It had become a place of mockery instead of a place of worship. And here's why. You come from far off with your family. You're making this once-in-a-lifetime journey. You know that it's too difficult to bring that prized lamb, and so you know and you've heard from neighbors and friends that as you make your way into Jerusalem, maybe in Bethany, maybe in Cana, maybe one of the cities that's closer, you can purchase from a fellow Israelite a lamb, an animal that could be slaughtered and could be used as a sacrifice. So you buy it. You're all excited. You're on the, uh, the steps of the temple. You're about to go into the temple courts, and there before you is a priest. And he looks at you, and you look at him, and he looks at your animal. And as examining the animal, he says, this animal is no good. He doesn't give reason Why? He doesn't say where there's defect. Everything you see of your animal seems to be totally fine, a choice animal to be given to the greatest of recipients, God. So the priest says, I'm sorry, that animal is no good. Doesn't give you reasons why. But he says, listen, today is your lucky day. I have a whole bevy of animals that I can sell to you they would sell these animals, historians say, at exorbitant fees. And so they would say, because you were ill-prepared, you're going to pay a higher price. We had to do the work to bring the animals to you, and so we are going to charge a convenience fee to cover the convenience of you not being prepared as you should have been. So, frustrated but still wanting to obey God, and this is your priest, this is one of the men that has been designed to be a representative between you and God. You agree with them, and you pull out your money. The problem is, the money you pull out would have come from one of three places in the Near East. It would have come from Egypt, it would have come from Greece, or it would have come from Rome. Those are the three countries that had what would be called precious metal currencies. Now, there were other currencies around, but those were the trade currencies. That is what most people would have had in their pocket. So you pull it out. You're paying way more than you would have expected, but it's the one time in a lifetime that you have to serve and worship God in such a special way. And so you, with a lump in your throat, you pull out your money, and the priest says, well, that's great, but here's the problem. We don't accept Egyptian money, Greek money, or Roman money. That's dirty money from dirty governments and dirty countries. You're a Jew, and we need money from you, and so they would use this minority coin called the Galilean shekel that was hard to come by. You know who had all the Galilean shekels? The priests. And so, what their job was to do was to be the money changer. So they'd say, "Okay." You can buy the animal here, but you got to go see the next table. That's where the currency exchange is. And just so you know, because you were ill-prepared and brought sinful money into the holy place of God, we're going to charge a convenience fee on that. And before you know it, before the people ever entered the temple, they had been cleared out of all their money. This is what made the priest in Jesus' days so rich, powerful. Instead of welcoming the people of God into the worship of God, they were hindering the people of God from getting close. Now, none of this, listen to me, none of this was in the 613 commands of Moses. There was nothing in the Old Testament law that said you couldn't use other money. In fact, we know that Jesus himself used Roman money to pay for taxes. There's nothing in there that said uh, what the criteria of the animals. It needed to be your best. It needed to be the best of your flock. It didn't need to be something that the priest had made it. What did Jesus see? Jesus saw people making a mockery of worship. Money changers. Animals. And so Jesus gets angry. And Jesus starts knocking over things. And this is a reminder that anger in itself is not sinful if it is done righteously. And he overturns the tables. And he pours out the coins of the money changers in verse 15. And he goes to those who are selling pigeons and he says, take these away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered a passage from the book of Malachi that said, zeal for your house will consume you. And so you would have imagined that in verse 18, after Jesus has done this, the priests who are concerned about the holiness of God's people would have said, hey, we weren't expecting you here today, Jesus, and we weren't expecting an inspection, but you've come You've pointed out the areas where we need to fix our religion. And we will take all of this other advisement. And so you say, no animal selling at exorbitant fees. Fine, we'll take care of it. The next time you come, it will be addressed. We won't charge exchange rates that make people paupers. And we won't hinder people, but we will help people in their worship of God. Got it. We've got it down on our list of things. We will take care of it. But notice, when Jesus shows up, a reminder for us, don't change the subject. So we see what Jesus sees. And the, no doubt, the priests knew what they were doing was wrong. And in verse 18 through 21, after Jesus goes about cleansing the temple, the people have the audacity not to agree with him but to put him on trial, to ask him questions. So this is what they say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? It would be like me failing in my catering company, the health inspection. I got food sitting out, I got flies all over it, I've got maggots growing. I know this is grossing you out. And the health inspector says, this is not how you run a kitchen. And my question is, well hey, why don't you tell me the classes you took that enable you to be a health inspector? And the health inspector says, wait a minute, I've got the badge. I'm the one in authority. I don't have to tell you why I have the right to call you out. Stop changing the subjects. But isn't that what we do? Isn't that what we do when God calls us out in our sin? When God comes and sees things in our lives and says, hey, this needs to change and this needs to change? You know, when God first came into the garden after Adam and Eve sinned, you know what Adam did? He changed the subject. He started blaming his wife, the woman you gave me. So he blames the woman, and he blames God. He says, it's not my fault I'm in this predicament. It's the people you put into my life, and it's you, God. You're the problem. How often do we do that when God calls us out for our sin? We start pointing the finger at other people. At least I'm not as bad as them. Or it's because you put this person into my life or you allow these circumstances in my life, God. This is what's caused me to sin. You're the problem. You see, this issue of blaming God for our sin is as old as Eden. It's as old as the first century temple. And we are prone to do that. We want to deflect. When God's convicting voice comes, we want to deflect it. And so notice... Jesus answers them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? They're they're not listening. That's the other thing. When Jesus shows up, you want to listen carefully to what he says. They don't listen. We have proof of this, because three different occasions in the Gospels, you will see this very passage quoted and every time it is quoted, it is misquoted. In fact, it's during the time of the arrest and the trial of Jesus. Someone says, Why should we kill him? And they bring a witness in, and one of the witnesses who was there says, I heard Jesus say that I, meaning Jesus, will destroy this temple. Well, look with your own eyes. He says, For them, that they will destroy the temple. They're not listening. So Jesus is giving them the words that they need to hear, and they're unwilling to listen. And so they misconstrue what is taking place. They, they deflect. If you were to do a Google search today of this passage and type the words in the Google search box, Jesus cleansing the temple sermons, you will see a lot of people with a very low level of Jesus or low view of Jesus and a low view of Scripture start pointing fingers at Jesus. Why would Jesus get so angry? It's so unbecoming of Jesus. Wait a minute, this passage is about us examining and evaluating who we are. Why are we taking the the light off of ourselves and putting out, well, Jesus, surely, this is an example. I saw one sermon. This is one of the reasons why Jesus could not have been the Son of God, because the Son of God surely would never get angry. God is a God of love, and God is a God of grace, and this is wrath, and this is judgment, and this is condemnation, and that is altogether unbecoming of God. Do you see what happens when we turn away from the examining eyes of our Heavenly Father? In the Lord Jesus Christ. We deflect and we change what He says and we change what He does because we don't want the heat. But this isn't what the disciples do. The disciples hear this. And they put it in their memory bank. And when Jesus dies on the cross and three days is raised from the dead, they recognize and they know and they are emboldened by the fact that at the early part of Jesus' ministry, he had a plan, he had a purpose, he had an agenda, and everything fell together as it was supposed to because he was God. And on that third day, he was raised from the dead. And in doing so, gave us new life. In him. Now, what are we to do with all of this? What are we in the 21st century here in our American lives supposed to do with a very Jewish passage of scripture talking about a Jewish holiday in a Jewish place like the temple? We would be quick for us to say those losers got it badly wrong and they blew it. But I want you to know today that the most important truth that you can walk away from in this text is that Jesus has authority over your spirituality and mine, just as he did then. And if Jesus has authority, Jesus can cleanse whatever he wants in our spirituality, just as he had every right to cleanse the temple. And so Jesus, just as he came in to inspect first-century worship, he comes in the 21st century to inspect our worship, and our living. And he's going to start pointing out things in our lives. Now, how does he do that? Does he come physically into our lives like a mom would come into your kid's bedroom and start knocking laundry over and, and pulling out uh, shelves and, and, and drawers of your life and saying, this place is a mess. My mom once did that. No, Jesus does it a little more subtly. Remember in John, later in the gospel, we will learn that Jesus will have one who will come, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will convict us of our sin. The Holy Spirit, which is residing in each and every one of us, is pointing out areas in our lives. As the Word of God is being spoken, there are areas in our life, we know them. We've struggled with them all week we've struggled to say no to them those are the things that we don't want our spouse or our kids or our parents or or our friends or our pastor or our small group to know about we know them the holy spirit's been telling us over and over again about them but will we do anything about it there's this little interlude at the end of our passage that goes like this now when he was in jerusalem At the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Listen to me, my friends. The reason why Jesus can do inspecting work is because he knows us better than we know ourselves. And it says that no one needed to bear witness for him for he himself knew what was in A man and let it be known he knows what is in a woman and so the question today is with this text write this down this text that causes us to examine and evaluate what are we going to do what are we going to do god's calling us to examine and evaluate our lives Maybe today he's doing a surprise inspection, and he's looking at your life, and it's easy to say, well, I didn't bring a cow to church, and I didn't extort money today, but maybe this morning you came in, and maybe I've come in with deceit in our hearts, with lying tongues, covetous eyes, lustful hearts. In a group this size, there's no doubt a litany of sins because we are all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. And so as we enter into this place, designed to be a gathering place where God's people can receive grace and where God can receive glory, as we come into this place, as Jesus, through His Holy Spirit, through the teaching of His Word, begins to convict us of our sins, will we stop and examine and evaluate the things that God sees? And when God sees things in your life, and let me just tell you, I'm preaching this to myself, when God sees the things in my life, will I try to change the subject when he brings them up? Will I start saying, well, at least I'm not as bad as that person? At least I'm doing this, that, and the other thing, they're not. Or will I blame God for my sin? You know, we live in a culture right now that wants to blame God for sin. And it's used under the phraseology, God made me this way. That's deflection. The Holy Spirit is convicting people of sin, but God, you made me this way, so it's not my problem, it's your problem. You're the issue, not me. Or will you, listen to me, prove your belief in God by allowing the refiner to do his work and to start calling out sin and agreeing with God through the Holy Spirit, yes, God, you're right. I do have a problem there. Yeah, I've made a mockery of my walk with you because of this, and I agree with you. I agree because you are God. You are the one who knows me better than myself. You are the one who bought me with a price and now I am the temple of the Holy Spirit and you have every right as you did in the first century to come into this temple and to tell me where I'm blowing it. And as a child of yours full of the grace and mercy you've bestowed upon you and the goodness that you've allowed to follow me all the days of my life, I'm going to agree with you and not only agree with you but move to Action to do what is necessary so that I may live an upright and holy life until He comes. So, let me ask you two questions, and they're not exhaustive, but two questions that got these people into trouble Is my life full of godly passion or personal gain? Jesus is zealous for His Father, for holiness. Are we, or do we see this life as an opportunity to feed ourselves and care for ourselves and comfort ourselves and 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 and, and 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 allow us to live more and more of the life that we desire instead of the life that God desires? That's the problem. Is it about God and His? passions and purposes and plans for our lives? Or is it about what we get out of this life? Number two, is my spiritual life, is my life full of distractions? Or is it about devotion? Jesus was upset. The place of God was full of distractions. The animals, they they weren't sinful. There was nothing inherently wrong with them. But they served as a distraction from what was intended to be done. And let me ask you today, are you having difficulty hearing the interrogative questions of God? Because you're so distracted by good and okay things that keep you from the greatest thing, and that is following Jesus. What needs to change in our hearts? What needs to change in our lives? Now here's the great grace you see, a lot needs to change. And it seems like every time you get up there, Tim, and you call us out for this stuff, as I'm calling myself out in this sin, there's more and more things. I just can't fix it. Every time Jesus comes into this temple, he finds it in disarray. Well, let me tell you something. If you will confess your sins, Jesus is faithful to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He wants to forgive you. And so maybe this is just another week, another day, where you keep going and saying, my temple's a mess. And Jesus says, that's why I came. That's why I came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why I came to make the unholy holy. That's why I came to make those who are dead alive. And Jesus is saying to you today, if you will humble yourself and draw near to me, I will draw near to you. And when you do, you will not, listen to me, experience the wrath of God or the punishment of God, but the loving discipline, like a loving parent who loves his child and longs for the child to live the best life that the parent could ever desire for their child. God longs for you to live in holiness and peace, filled with joy, but it means agreeing with him when he comes and does his inspection. Amen?